If you have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And in a moment, we are going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 34 uh, together as a part of a way of jumping into a new series, which I'm really excited about. <clears throat> and uh, uh, this past week uh, was crazy uh, in the Ramsey family life. Um, Monday, uh, Pete there, everybody say hi to Pete. Uh, hey, Pete. Um, Pete's a great guy. You should corner him before he leaves and get to know him a little bit. Um, Pete and I flew out to Kansas City. Uh, Tuesday, we drove the family, Pete and I, we drove our little caravan back here. Wednesday, we unpacked everything, uh, which, by the way, you guys were, you guys just blessed us so much. Um, for those of you who were able to be there, for those of you who, who weren't able to be there but wished you could have, I just want you guys to know 12 South uh, Midtown loved on the Ramsey family this past week in ways that I'm just, I'm so, so thankful for. We pulled up Tuesday morning to unload two U-Haul trucks and there were, there were 30 people there um, to help. They got two trucks unloaded in an hour. Uh, it was just, it was an amazing thing and there was coffee and breakfast food, and then there's just been meals coming, and we feel so loved uh, by you, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Um, that was Wednesday, and then Thursday, the kids started school, uh, and uh, yeah, thank you for the gasp. Um, <laughs> we, we gasped, uh, everybody, uh, and uh, yeah, and so that's been our week, and so it wasn't until uh, really yesterday um, that I'd, I'd been thinking about this message for a couple of weeks now, but it wasn't until yesterday that I started to put some things on paper and started to arrange it. And, and I reached a point last night where I was just like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And I, I've, been, I've been preaching long enough that I don't get nerves when I get up in front of people to speak. But one of the things that does pop into my head uh, and one of the things that I contend with is the question, and it's a question that has a lot to do with where we're going this morning, is what if I fail? What if I fail? Because um, I'm tired, you know? I'm tired, and I'm not only tired, but I'm on the threshold of uh, between two worlds, you know? Uh, between a world that we're leaving and between a world, this world, which is a wonderful world that we're stepping into. And I'm six weeks in. My family is just a few days in. And uh, it's just an emotional, it's, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. What if I fail? Back when I was a senior in high school, I remember I learned that the fingerprint dust that detectives use gets over everything if you're around it. It was in my hands, under my fingernails, and my sleeves, my clothes. My dad and I were sorting through just the rubble of a mess that burglars had left the night before in his office. And uh, just... You know, my dad's a computer programmer. In the farmland of Indiana where we grew up, he had this old brick schoolhouse that was his office and had been converted into uh, a church for a while and then, and then he was using it now as an office. And people might think a computer programmer, gosh, he probably has a lot of very valuable equipment. But if you've ever been around computer programmers, you know that what they really have is just a bunch of junk. 
um, lots and lots and lots of junk. Um, and, and that's what dad had. He didn't have anything really valuable in there, maybe a computer or two at the most. Um, but it didn't stop the burglars from just destroying everything, turning everything over, just making a huge mess. And we were talking about how unsettling it is to have your world turned upside down like this, how it's just un, unnerving. And it was while we were having this conversation that the phone rang, and it was the hospital, calling to say that my, my grandfather, who lived in the nursing home wing of the hospital, um, wasn't doing well, was how they said it. He's not doing well. And somebody should probably come out. And so we decided, all right, let's stop this and we'll go. I had to go straight from work, or straight from there to work. And so I said, I'll meet you there. I'm going to get cleaned up a little bit. And by the time I arrived, I remember walking into my grandfather's room and having this scene just frozen in my memory of my grandfather laying in his bed very, very still, and my dad right next to him with tears in his eyes looking at me, and he said, he just left. I was here when it happened. He's gone. And we we stood there in that room just kind of in, in silence, and it's hard to know in advance how you're going to respond in situations like that, isn't it? I mean, you see things in movies and you see people responding to tragedy. The response that I felt in the moment was strange to me, even while I was feeling it. Because while I felt a little bit sad, mainly for my dad, I felt strong. I felt like a man. And I'm not saying that as a boast, like I felt like a man, but I, I felt like I was a 21-year-old man. And I felt that way because I realized that this was in this room three generations of Ramsey men. And unless my brother or I would go on later to have a son, which I have, this would be the last time that there would be three generations of Ramsey men in a room together a grandfather, a father, and a son. And now one of them was gone. And I remember thinking, it doesn't feel like the one that's gone is the grandfather. It feels like now the one that's gone is the son. Because when Grandpa died, my dad and I both took a step forward generationally. He was now the old guard. And I was next. And the next one to be in that line would be one behind me. Our world was upside down. Have you ever been in a situation like this where you feel like, ready or not, you are taking a step forward into something? It happens when you go to college, right? You leave the nest that was home. And you can go back and live in your room in the summers. You can not go to school at all, and you can live in your room and stay in your parents' house after high school, but it is not the same. You get married, and you make these promises, these vows in front of God and witnesses to somebody. And they're vows that if you listen to them, they are extreme, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health. Till one of us dies 
That's the promise that you make in marriage. And, but when you're standing there and you're 21, 22, 23, however old you are, it doesn't matter if you're in your 30s, 40s, if you're 18, you're just looking at that person and you're thinking, yeah, 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 I'll get through the vows, I'll get through the vows. I just want to be married to you. But you speak these words in anticipation of better and worse, of rich and poor, of sickness and health. And you make this promise not having any idea really what's going to be required of you later in life to keep those vows. Friendships are that way. Work is this way. Parenthood is this way. The Lord gives you a life and if you don't feed it, it won't live. And if you don't change it, it won't be quiet. You know, it's yours to care for every little thing, these thresholds that you step across, and there's no going back. There's no going back. And what if you fail? What if you fail? What if I fail? How do I know if I'm ready? Because these things seem to happen long before we say, okay, I'm ready, don't they? What are they in your life right now? The situations that you're looking at and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Because if you're already making that transition, I mean this with love in my heart. It doesn't matter if you're ready for this or not because it's here, you know, and we just can't push back time. Today we begin a new series on the life of Joshua, the book of Joshua. And Joshua was a person who was called by God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And that's an awesome call when you think about it, to be the guy out in front. You've seen those paintings of George Washington standing up in the front in the bow of the ship with one knee bent like this, you know, leading the people in, Joshua. And he's leading the people into a new era of life. In many ways, Midtown is entering a new era of life, right? The building that Midtown has met in downtown for years was leveled to the ground this summer. Ha! It's gone now, you know? Uh, And then they went over to West End Community Church and have met in this temporary place that has felt wonderful and strange all at the same time. And now they're moving back to Rocket Town, to this new place, a new era, 12 South. The Lord is deepening and expanding this community here. He's doing things in this fellowship here that are new for us, new seasons, new semesters. And we're, so I think it's very timely that we're picking up Joshua in this season where he is poised to do this. I wonder if it went through Joshua's mind, what if I fail? And he would have had as much reason to fear that as, as any other human being I know because he was following in the footsteps of Moses. And Moses was, to many in Israel, one of the greatest heroes as a nation that they had in their history. Moses, the one who led them out of Egypt, the one who led them through the wilderness of Sinai, the one who received the Ten Commandments from the finger of God, Moses. And it falls now to Joshua to follow him. What if he fails? He'd been following Moses But see, here's the thing about Moses and Joshua's story. When the book of Joshua opens, Moses is dead. He's not there. It's Joshua's turn. He takes the mantle of leadership. He leads the people into the promised land. 
And you have to ask, how would you feel about filling Moses' shoes? Because it's easy to look at Moses and say, well, he was Israel's hero. He was the hero of this story, and I can't stand in his shoes. I can't fill his shadow, the hole that he's left. But when we do this, we're making a mistake about Moses. And the mistake that we're making about Moses is we're mistaking him for the hero of the story. And he's not. And so what I want to do now is I want to read a passage of Scripture about Moses, and I'm going to put a storyteller hat on, and I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about Moses, and then we'll circle back at the end to this question of what if I fail. The text that I want to read is actually the story of Moses' death. And then I want us to unpack that a little bit. This is from Deuteronomy 34. If you're following along, I'm just reading the whole chapter. It's 12 verses. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. And I have let you see it with your own eyes. But you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see the unfolding story and engage our hearts here with this question of if we lead, what if we fail? Father, I pray that you would be revealing to us even now already uh, those places where you are taking us across a threshold that we can't cross back from. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to depend upon you to be faithful in that. Uh, Lord, you never fail. And so we thank you. And thank you for the story of Moses. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's the scene. Joshua is standing on the, I guess it would be the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and he's facing west. So he'd be doing this. And he's facing west, and he sees the promised land just spread out before him. 
And behind him, in the plains of Moab, are the camps of the people of Israel. And behind them, somewhere in the valleys leading into the mountains of Moab and Mount Nemo, Nebo, lies the body of Moses in a place God only knows. And their call is to go west. With Moses leading, been leading them for 40 years, God had escorted the people through the desert of Sinai with a pillar of cloud by day to keep them cool and a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm. This was under Moses' leadership. God fed them with manna from heaven like a mother bird feeding her young. And he brought forth in that desert water from, of all places, a rock so that they wouldn't wither up and die. And because of this, Moses was to generations and generations of Israelites an untouchable hero. But for Moses, especially later in his life, he didn't really need to look any further than that rock from which the water came to know he wasn't the hero of the story. He wasn't the hero of the story at all. But instead, he was that rock would testify a stubborn man, a fragile man, somebody who had been well-loved, somebody who had been well-utilized by the Lord, but somebody who had failed and failed and failed and failed more times than he could count. And yet he was the one that was leading the people. For all his greatness, while he was leading the people of Israel, by the way, they just complained about him, kind of from the beginning. They wanted him to do what God had called him to do, but when he went to do it, they complained about the means and the ways and the time and the, and the way that it was. This isn't exactly what we had in mind. And it wasn't so much as leadership as it was the fact that to be led, you have to leave. You have to leave where you've been. You have to be willing to go someplace new. And we grow fond of where we've been, don't we? We love the familiar We grow fond of where we've been even if our hearts and even if our futures are enslaved there. It still seems better sometimes. And for every move Moses made toward leading these people to freedom, they found something that they left behind to complain about or to lament and to do it to Moses. In the desert, the people were groaning, they were thirsty, they had nothing to drink, and they were thinking about how they would have given anything for the grapes and the pomegranates and the figs that they had in abundance when they lived in Egypt as slaves. And so here's what they said to Moses. This is the kind of stuff that they said to Moses. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? And Moses takes this thankless complaint to the Lord, and the Lord says, Moses, they're thirsty. The Lord says, Moses, they're thirsty. Take your staff. Go to the rock in the middle of the camp. Raise your staff and tell the rock, tell the rock to yield its water. 
and they will drink. Children, we ask, I want grape juice. And God, as parents have done throughout the ages, has said, you may have a drink of water. And by now, Moses, he's had enough. He's just mad. He's just mad. He's mad at everything. He's mad at God. He's mad at the people. He's mad at the situation that he's in. He's mad at the desert. Any, anybody ever been camping? You get a whole different kind of mad when you're camping, don't you? When things don't go right. That's what they were doing, all of them, hundreds of thousands of them camping. They're that kind of mad. And so Moses gathers the people around. Everybody gather around. And then he just lays into them about how rebellious they are and how stubborn they are and how thankless they are. And he says, you want something to drink? I'll give you something to drink. And he raises that staff, just like God said. But instead of telling the rock to yield its water, he hits it with that staff. Puts that punctuation on his anger and it betrays how he really feels, how he's mad at them, but he's not just mad at them, he's mad at God. Because that rock represents God. And so he strikes it. He struck when only speaking was needed. And this showed the anger inside. And you see a man who has failed. And leadership is not for the faint of heart. It is often lonely. People form committees and HR departments to go and find the best leaders that they can, and then they get them in place. And when those leaders do the very thing that they were hired to do, the people complain that the leader is leading, but not the way that they thought he would lead. And so they use words to describe what he's doing or she's doing. They use words like baffled, just baffles me, or I'm concerned, or disappointed, to just subtly go on record as a way of saying, I think you're a fool. And the hardest part for the leader is that enough of the time, he is a fool. She is a fool. But they're leaders. And so they're leading, and they're making mistakes, or they're doing things that are not agreeable to everyone. And Moses was a fool. He was a fool to strike that rock because he thought that to lead is to actually accomplish the objective. And it's not. It wasn't on Moses to give them water. By the way, this is an aside, but I just I don't want to let this go because we want to be faithful to what scripture says. Moses strikes the water, strikes the rock, and out comes water. And the text tells us that all of the people and all of the livestock drink their fill. I don't know what image you have of the water coming out of the rock. If it's a little trickle, a little stream, let me just undo that for you. Hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds and thousands of animals drank from that rock. And when Moses struck it, I would have been terrified of what just happened. But he was just mad. And God's discipline in Moses' life was, Moses, you're not, you're not going to see this journey to its end. You're not going to take him in. You're not going to take him in. 
I raised you up to lead these people out of slavery and into the promised land. And your legacy will be that you led them out of slavery and to the promised land, but not in. You're not going to do that. This is Moses. This is the one who called the people out of Egypt, the one who confronted and prevailed over Pharaoh. This is the one who led the people along that path of dry ground that moments before was the Red Sea. The one who saw God in the mountain and was struck with such a glory that the people didn't want to look on him. This Moses would not see the journey to its end. And it's sad, isn't it, that he did all this and he gets to this point and you think, man. But in this reality, there's a glorious truth for anybody who would lead other people, which is, by the way, what every believer in Christ is called to do. And the the glorious truth is this. Moses isn't the hero of Israel's story. You're not the hero of God's story. You're not the hero of your own story. We're mistaken if we think that the story of God's deliverance of his people began when Moses was born and ended when Moses died. Moses was just a part of a much bigger unfolding story. The people of Israel were there in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years because God made a promise to Abraham 400 years earlier that he would take Abraham's descendants, of which he had none at the time, and that they would become more numerous than the stars, and that God would give them this land. And Moses, or and the Lord says to Abraham, even when he's making that promise 400 years earlier, and by the way, Abraham, before any of this happens, there will be 400 years of slavery. And there was. And then Moses. And he leads them out. And God is keeping a promise that is an ancient promise hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old before Moses comes on the scene and he's leading the people of Israel to this land that God didn't promise to them directly but that he promised to their forefathers generations before. If you are a follower of the Lord, your hope, your story, your faith, your confidence, your eternal destiny rests not in a promise or an agreement that you made with God the moment that you prayed and asked him to live in your heart. But it's an eternal promise that God has been the one to speak and God will be the one to keep. And we're in that story, but it's not about us ultimately. And there's something gloriously liberating about the fact that Moses, not Joshua, not David, not Elijah, Not Peter, not Paul, not you or me are essential to the success of God's faithfulness. It's not our burden to bear for God to be faithful. And yet we find, like Moses and like Joshua, that God is a God of means, that he uses means, that he uses people. And he does this because he's pleased to, because it brings him glory to use his people to lead others to himself. It's a high honor And it's a glorious mystery. Joshua couldn't see what the Lord was doing. But it was about so much more than just entering that promised land. I don't know what threshold you're crossing. You'll probably fail along the way. You know? 
if you haven't already. No, you will fail along the way. I'm being too soft. You will. You'll have moments where you'll think, oh, and there will be people who will be right there to say, yeah, I really can't for the life of me understand why you did that. You know? It will be. But the Lord is taking you someplace. He's not content for you to just find your little niche, your little groove, and leave you there and surround you with the same familiar people and to all make this little covenant to be 17 for the rest of our lives. That's not God's desire for us. That's good. That's good. If you're hoping for that point of application, I don't know that I have one for you other than to tell you that this story is still happening. God is still leading people to himself. What I will say is this. When the Lord raises up people to lead, it's not to lead them to build a great church. And it's not to lead them to, to facilitate the best Bible study in town or the most um, authentic, whatever that word means, uh, expression of worship. What God uses people for when, when he calls us to lead is to lead people to himself. God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. God's call on the lives of his people is ultimately to himself. I want to close with a picture from the text that we read, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. And I want to flesh out something here. Forty years of leading the people. 40 years of being in the wilderness, of triumph, of failure, of manna, of water from a rock, of countless people who have been buried along the way and countless others who have been born along the way. And now they come to Moab where all that separates Israel from the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, all that separates them now is a river. That's it. And God told Moses, you're not going in. But the Lord takes Moses up onto Mount Nebo. The Lord takes Moses. I don't understand how this happened. And the text is, 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 is helpfully vague, right? Of saying, well, it's a mystery how this happened, but it happened. That's the point. Is God took Moses up onto Mount Nebo and he showed him, look at it, you're here. That over there, that's where Dan's going to live and that's where Naphtali's going to be and Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah. And he goes through all of them and he shows them. He shows Moses. And what he's telling him is, Moses, you have been at times in your life a colossal failure. You've been really bad at doing what I've called you to do sometimes. But look, we're here. And then he buries Moses. And I can't even get my head around that. That Moses dies and our text says God buried him. What a sweet picture of the Lord taking his servant and tucking him away someplace where the people would never find him and laying him to rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
It's a beautiful picture. And Joshua then stands at the bank of that river and God says, go. Pray with me. Lord, there is a part of me that wants to always uh, boil down Scripture into little propositional statements, directives, bullet points. Go then and do likewise. And yet, so much of how you and your wisdom have uh, ordained Scripture to function is you've just given us story after story after story of lives and struggle, suffering, hurt, triumph, failure. And so, Father, I pray as you apply your word to our hearts this morning that you would do it in such a way to where we understand that we're not alone, that the hero of the story of Scripture is not Moses or Joshua or David or anyone else, but is Christ, who is the only one to not fail and who is ultimately the one who has prevailed over everything that is broken in all of us. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study, as we think of this and as we study the book of Joshua in the weeks to come, that you would help us to see Christ, that you would help us to see Joshua as a type of Christ, as one who is leading the people toward the Father, but that we would never be satisfied only in what we find in Joshua, but that it would give us a hunger for the leadership to be perfect. And Lord, I pray that in that, that you would make us leaders as well that you would raise us up and shape us and form us and guide us and give us the confidence and the faith in you to lead where you call us to. Confront us in our fears. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.